you would turn now in your bulletin to Luke 11, 1 through 4, we have been reading together all week long the Lucan version of the Lord's Prayer, and we're going to read that aloud together. This then is the text for today. It happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place, after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John also taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. May God bless the reading of his word. We rarely, if ever, come to the Lucan version of the Lord's Prayer, and so I'm grateful that we are studying there this week, this summer. It's good for us to consider Luke's version here. It begins in the same way, our Father. Our Father, hallowed be thy name. As Jesus instructs his disciples how to pray, here he is simple in his instruction, but we note this, even in the simplicity of this prayer, it is as pointed as it gets. In fact, with just this first line, uh, line, our Father, hallowed be your name, we see the perfect theology of the Christ in just a few words. Sometimes we think there should be more. Sometimes we expect more. Sometimes we, we think there should be more to the faith, that our faith, we think, should be complicated, as if something that's complicated is more valuable, or if something that is complicated is more exclusive, and yet here is the Christ being simple. The whole prayer in and of itself is simple, and the first line, Short, but pointed. You see, these simple statements that Jesus gives us here in the Lord's Prayer, they're simple statements of belief that draw our hearts heavenward. In, in just a few words, Jesus takes us from the dirt of this earth and pulls us upward into the throne room of God so that we know and see His glory. You know, sometimes we find it helpful in the church at large to recite creeds or to distill significant concepts down to, to just a few phrases of thought. And, and, and we like this so that we can digest it well. And it's interesting how Jesus does that for us here. Jesus knows that we need simple. And so when he's teaching his disciples how to pray, he keeps it simple, but that doesn't mean it lacks depth. In fact, it's just the opposite. This, this is simple with a depth that we couldn't know on our own. You see, as Jesus teaches how to pray, you see more significantly here, he's teaching the disciples what they believe. He's teaching them the theology of heaven as he teaches them to pray. You see, most often when we think of prayer, our, our minds go to asking for stuff. 
And our, our hearts and in the flesh, we seek a formula that we might ask for stuff so that whatever stuff we ask for might be given to us. That when we ask, we receive. But, but, but Jesus here is not giving them a class on how to get more of what we want. In, in fact, Jesus is taking them back and saying, let us pray out of what we believe. And, and let me teach you the theology of heaven. And as you proclaim that, your prayer ascends to that which is holy. You see, he's showing his disciples what they believe. To deepen their faith into something that's beyond them. Our Father, hallowed be thy name. And even if you just start with those first couple of words, our Father, this is an expression of belief in God who is the origin of all that is. That when we state that our Father, we are stating that God is the one who created all things. That, that God in heaven above was the one who created by his hand your beating heart. We know, or they tell us, that your heart is going to beat something like 1,750 times during this sermon, though you're not telling your heart to beat each time, not consciously. But our God, the Creator, knows every time that your heart contracts. Our God knows, He, he created it by His hand, it so beats, and God in this way is primary, our Father. And, and this same God, as we profess our Father, this same God that we are praying to, we recognize who, who knows every heartbeat, also knows the bubbles that are trying to escape from the earth's liquid core. You see, this is nearly impossible for us to imagine. But, but the same God who keeps the far-flung reaches of outer space in order cares about your heart, cares about, about who you are. He is a perfect father that you originated in God. And, and, and a part of that creation, as God created you, as he created you to be, it is written on your heart and it is written in your mind. It's a part of your DNA that you need God. You, you must have a relationship with your heavenly father. And, and if, you, if you don't have that relationship with your God, this, this life gets frazzled to the point that it's almost unlivable. Where, where we begin to fall into distress the further we move away from our Heavenly Father. This is, this is written into who you are as He created your heartbeat. He created in you this desire to be near Him and with Him in all of us. You need your Heavenly Father. And in that same way, He delights in a relationship with you. That as he keeps the cosmos in order, his delight is in you. His, his delight is in relationship with you, in conversation with you. This is what Jesus sets in order to our Father. See, when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, this is where he begins. Teaching, 
those apostles to, to recognize their own insignificance in that we are just one heartbeat of untold pulses of time. And yet, even still, your heavenly Father cares for you intimately. You see, as that works out, what that means is that our Father, the Creator, alone is good. And, and God is beyond that all-powerful nature to the point of goodness and holiness and purity. You see, the power of God that, that we see in creation of itself is not neutral. The, the power of God that we see on display in the world around us is not manipulated for evil. It's just the opposite. We believe and know that God alone is good. And, and with that, we're, we're making a statement. And we're making the statement that you and I are not good. We we are not good as it stands. It is God alone who is good. In this prayer, the opening lines of Jesus' instruction here, leave no room whatsoever for your name to be hallowed. It, It is not you upon which the glory will reside. It is not you where holiness bubbles up. It's not in you. It is in God alone. Our, our little kingdoms have no room to advance. The only kingdom that presses forward is the kingdom of God on this earth. And this prayer that begins with our Father, when it's practiced in the heart, sheds all sense of glory and takes on this posture of humility pointing up to say all glory and honor and praise belong to the Lord God above. You know, it's interesting, when the psalmist in Psalm 14 writes that there's no one good, no, not one, that the psalmist is, is relaying the same message as the incredible creatures of Revelation chapter 4 who cry out, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. The message is one and the same. God is deserving of praise. We are not our Father. Hallowed be thy name. You see, this is a proclamation of belief. This is a statement of faith for the record, transcribed along the words of the angels. And though it's true, and though it has been written for our instruction for thousands of years, there are still some, even some among us, who refuse to accept this fact. There are some in the flesh who refuse the sovereignty of God in hopes that they might be able to control the outcome of things. But Scripture already tells us how this ends. You are not in control. This world comes to its end and your life knows all goodness only by the hand of God. God alone is in control. Now, as as Jesus continues this prayer, as he's teaching his disciples, he he moves from this sort of grand and cosmic nature of God, and and he moves down into the dust of the earth, and and how this this holiness of God is, is revealed in us, the sons and daughters of God, that God's goodness 
surrounds the life of his children in all kinds of specific ways, but there's a couple of ways of note that Jesus gives to us in this prayer of how this glory of God is revealed and lived in our lives. And, and these are ways, and, and Jesus includes them in the prayer intentionally because these are ways that children often overlook and that we as children of God often overlook his provision in our lives and the way he's taking care of us. You see, for one, God has never let his children unwittingly wither. When you turn through the pages of scripture, we see stories like Adam and Eve who were given unlimited fruit. To the children of Israel, there were quail and manna every day. To the 5,000 they were fed. To the 4,000 they were multiplied loaves and fishes. Even, even to the one who would betray Jesus. Jesus reached out his hand and gave him a piece of bread. You see, this is the way of God. To pray then, give us this day our daily bread. Is a promise of God with the scriptures to nurture his children as he always has. That God not only created, but God as a perfect heavenly father sustains that which he created. God always provides for you. And God always provides exactly what you need when you need it. And I do want us to be careful in this. I don't want us to downplay the physical nature of this line of the prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. When, when we think about who we are and the, the, the physical nature of our bodies, the, the beauty of God's created order you see, God intentionally made you so that your, your body would inhale oxygen and exhale carbon dioxide. That God intentionally made your body so that it would need food as fuel, that you would need rest to, to be re-energized. And, and that God in his perfect heavenly father way reaches down from heaven and, and, and makes sure that you have what you need for this day giving you your daily portion of bread, causing your, your body to breathe, your heart to beat. We need the physical. God ordained it was so and God provides in the physical. You know, it's, it sounds a bit counterintuitive, but this is one of the reason, reasons that fasting can be so meaningful to us. See, here in the United States, we have such an abundance of things and such an abundance of food. M most of us forget what it's like to be hungry. Most of us have forgotten what it's like for our stomach to really yearn for food. And in that way, because there's such an overabundance among us, we forget then where our daily bread comes from. We, we forget what real hunger feels like and fasting in the scripture is a reminder that God gives you bread to eat that comes directly from his hand. A, a fast is a temporary amount of time to, to remind us that these basic physical needs are provided by our God alone every single one of them. 
It's interesting because we see the same thing with the Israelites. You know, when the, when the Israelites' stomachs were full, they then complained about the food that God had given them. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting in the same way after Jesus fed the 5,000 and then after Jesus fed the 4,000, uh, uh, immediately after Jesus feeds the 4,000, which is a second event, the disciples are on a boat wondering where their bread is going to come from. You see, these stories have been told, retold for thousands of years and, and the reason we have to be told these stories over and over again because there are still some among us who refuse to accept it. There, there are still some among us in the flesh who find God's provision lacking. That somehow we think that God's provision is something short of a perceived ideal that we think we deserve. When in reality, we don't even deserve the daily bread that God has given. You see, there are those around us who, who think that their palate is more sophisticated than God's and refuse his provision. We pray that we would know this verse that Jesus gives us. Our daily bread. You know, it's interesting that Jesus continues. And, and then verse 4 moves into a, a longer concept that begins with forgive us our sins. And what we see is we, we move from, from the physical world and the, the world of our senses. And then, then Jesus begins to open up the spiritual world, the, the greater world. Forgive us our sins. And, and that's because in the physical world and in physical matters, we have acted like Adam and Eve. We, we, we refuse to listen to God. We have acted like the Israelites and we've complained about God's provision for our lives. We have responded in the same way of Peter, of denying knowing the Christ. And, and in that way, as we, we fall into the way of Adam, where sin becomes replicated in our life over and over again. And that means for us, and this is why Jesus goes in verse four where he does, the greatest need of our life then is no longer bread to eat. The greatest need of our life then becomes spiritual and the most significant need of your life is the forgiveness of your sin. You see, once we go the way of Adam, Our need is no longer oxygen. It's no longer bread. The single greatest need of your life is the forgiveness of God for every mistake we have ever made, for all the pain that we, we have brought into our life by, by going a different direction than our God. God makes it clear in the scriptures that God alone is the restorer for everything else that you have messed up God has said, I will restore for everything that you have toppled, for all of the destruction that you have caused, God has said, he will restore. You see, Adam's way is chaos. God brings the calm of restoration. See, in this world, in this world that God created, we broke it. 
And God the restorer came to fix it. You see, when Jesus teaches us to pray, forgive us our sins, this is us admitting this fact. We have broken the world that God created. It's our fault. And still, there are some among us who refuse to admit this. We, we, we refuse to admit our fault in the matter. You see, there's some of us who struggle to say this. But, but the first step of, of, of knowing God's healing power is to admit where we have failed in all of this. That this world is a mess and we contributed to the mess. We have done nothing to fix it. There is nothing in our strength or our power that we could do to fix the mess that we have created. We are the problem. There's still some among us who, who refuse to admit this, refuse to admit our fault. There's still many around us who want to blame our God. And in this prayer, as Jesus works down through, teaching us how to pray, we stop blaming God and recognize that it is God alone who can fix this mess that we have found ourselves in. You see, as it stands, it's, it's like the prayer. When we can admit that it's our sin that's the problem, life becomes far simpler. When, when we admit that our sin is the problem and there is no possible way to us, for us to fix it, it becomes clear that we need to go somewhere else. My strength, my intelligence, my power can't fix any of this. And so we look up. God has, has promised to restore. And God, God brings good into our life again. When, when you submit to God and you pray in this way, as Jesus taught us to pray, it solidifies what we believe and it transforms your life in that belief. We, we need transformation in our hearts and in our lives and in our minds today. And the only place we find that is by the Spirit of God in the blood of Jesus Christ. See, Jesus gives us simple instructions in the Gospels of, of how to pray. And these simple instructions of Jesus will change everything if only we would listen. You know, this, this was the way of the Christ. He, he does the same thing with the Lord's Supper. A simple lesson that points to the, the pinnacle of human achievement. 